I want to start a, a series today through a book of my, um, my favorite book of the Bible. Now, if you've known me for any length of time, any book I'm in, I, or I usually say is my favorite book, but this is for real, for real, my favorite book. Um, it's actually the book that we started our church in, in 2010. It's, the, it's, the, it's like the formative foundational book in the life of our church. So if you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Mark. In some ways, it feels like we're restarting the church in a new building out of COVID, and I think it's appropriate and a good and right and fitting for us to, to restart the church the way we started the church, by looking at Jesus and the gospel he brings, the good news he brings. And another reason why I want to revisit this book is because if you didn't know, uh, the name of our church, even though it does sound like a nightclub, uh, <clears throat> It does. Someone actually thought it was when we were looking for buildings when we first moved here. Uh, the name reality actually comes from the Bible. It comes from Colossians 2.17. Apostle Paul says that these are a shadow of things to come. And he's speaking of all the Old Testament rituals that were shadows and signposts. He says that pointed to the ultimate reality. But the reality, however, is found in Christ. And so all the things that the Old Testament and the entire Bible points to is Jesus, and Jesus is the reality. And what I love about Mark and what Mark is talking about is that reality, the reality of Jesus and the reality of the gospel he brings. And what I hope to do, excuse me, as a church is once again look at the reality of Christ the King through the book of Mark. So Mark chapter 1, and let me encourage you, if you have a Bible at home, start to bring it. Start to bring it. We'll be using it a lot, flipping back and forth through Mark. If you have a journal and you take notes, um, take notes. Re- revisit what God's kind of like spoken to you or whatever, what the church is going through. Um, and the way that is good to take notes is try to take notes of things that you, uh, that you feel like the Spirit is like moving your heart to. Don't just take notes like a, a student would in college, like, okay, point one, point two, here's a subpoint. I mean, that is a way to take notes, but a better way to take notes is as you're listening, what is, what is the Spirit like doing? What is the Spirit like, oh, that, that's, that's oh, I want to sit with that, or I didn't know that, or I knew that, but it's now renewed in a certain way. Take notes that way. Um, if you don't have a Bible today, there's one in the back of the pews. Upstairs, there's, as you walk in, there's Bibles. Feel free to take those home and write in them if you want to, if you're that sort of person that like highlights in their Bible, whatever. Um, Mark chapter 1, I'm going to read through verse verse 15, and then I'm going to pray. Verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. They were baptized uh, by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. 
and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news or believe the gospel. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we, as we open up the scriptures, would you open up our hearts and our minds, God? And I pray, Lord, that there would be something today of the way of Jesus that gets into our bones, into our body, maybe afresh or new for the very first time. We come to you with all these presuppositions of what we think you are like, even if we've been following you for a long time, the way that we think what Jesus you've come to do and all of that. And so we, we come to this book and we say, Lord, shape us according to who you are like Aslan the lion, you're not safe, but you're good. I pray that we would encounter Christ like that. That we, all the things that we might even believe, just are not safe. They're not safe when we come face to face with you, Jesus. But we know you're good. Would you lead us? Things that we believe that are wrong, would you reorient them? Ways that we're living that are not aligned to being a disciple of Jesus, would you reorient it, Lord? May there be almost nothing sacred, nothing safe here, Lord. We come to you and go, teach us, show us, Lord. I submit my capacities to you and ask that you would lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I've been um, <clears throat> on a big Christopher Nolan kick lately, as in the director of all the best movies ever made in the world. Christopher Nolan. Um, I started on my vacation uh, this, uh, this last summer when I needed to just turn off my email and turn off my phone and kind of kickstart my imagination and, to be honest, be very, very, very entertained. And what I love about Christopher Nolan, if you've ever watched any of his films, the, the, the Batman, the new Batman series, Inception, I mean, just tons of them. I don't have time to get into all of them. What I love about Christopher Nolan films, and I love a lot about Christopher Nolan, but one of my favorite things, and one, I, sometimes I just do, I start the film just for this part, as I love the beginning of a Nolan film. I love the first like 10, 15 minutes of every Nolan film. He starts his films with both dissonance and action. Like you're dropped right into the middle of something, and you have to figure out what's going on in the movie. It's like Inception, you're dropped right into the middle of this like party, but someone's shooting other people, and then the earth is shaking and quaking, and then you meet this very old, old man at the, in the, like the interior of this room, and, 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 you're, and he's talking, and you're, don't, you have no idea what's going on. And he's playing with this like little thimble thing, and you have to figure out what's happening. Or the beginning of the dark night, when there's a bank heist and all this stuff's going on, and then Joker emerges, and you're like, ah, like, and you're trying to figure out what is happening, and then there's the score, the music that's dissonant, like string notes typically, and there's like these things that kind of make you on edge, and you're like, oh, what's going to happen? I love the beginning of his films. Mark starts his book, his gospel, very much like this. It doesn't start with Jesus' birth like other gospels do. It starts right in the middle of action. Mark starts with an announcement, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. 
And then right after that, after this announcement, we're brought into the middle of the wilderness. All of a sudden, the camera shifts, and we're in the middle of the wilderness, and people are coming from all over the place, from the Judean countryside, from Jerusalem. They're, they're running. They're all just running to the wilderness, and then you get this glimpse of a peculiar wild man who's wearing this mohair-like jumper with a, with a leather belt, and he eats locusts and wild honey, and he's by the Jordan River, and he's baptizing, and people are flocking to him. And his message is one of repentance. And as people are repenting, he's baptizing them. And they finally, like the, the camera kind of zooms in on his face. He says, you think this is something. There is someone who's coming after me greater than me. Then he says, after me comes one more powerful than I, more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. That was like reserved for the lowest servant to untie the sandals of people who came in and washed their feet. It's like, I'm not even worthy to do that with him. I baptize you with water in the Jordan River, but someone who's coming who's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, what's, inter- what's, what's brought into this narrative is the, the, the power of the Spirit. Like, you have all kinds of questions. What is that? What's going on? What do you mean the power of the Spirit? How will this person come and be more powerful than you and then bring the Holy Spirit? And then all of a sudden, because that's how Mark's gospel moves, this man, this powerful one emerges. And of course, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus shows up, and when he does, he, like everyone else, gets baptized, but his baptism is different because when he's baptized, the narrative says that heaven is torn open. Heaven is torn open? That's in the, like, heaven is torn open. That, like, layer between God and man is removed. And God now is among us, torn open. And then God speaks, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And now the story follows Jesus from here on out. And as we follow Jesus, he's led deeper and deeper into the wilderness, and he meets the character Satan, I mean, this is Satan. He meets Satan. And then all of a sudden, Jesus emerges. Now, Mark doesn't say what happened with him and Satan. That's Luke and Matthew's job. What, what Mark does, he's like, and he met Satan, and then he emerges, as if to say, who do you think won that? <laughs> and then he emerges, and he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The time has come. Some of your translations say the time is fulfilled. And like a good Christopher Nolan film, Mark here is playing with time by compressing it. What Mark is saying here is that all time is compressed now. All time is fulfilled means that all the prophecies told in in the story of God up to this point are happening right now in present time. All of human history hinges on this very moment, and it's happening really, really fast. Mark is written in the present tense and uses words like immediately all over again, over and over again. The word immediately is actually used 11 times in the first chapter alone. And Mark isn't lazy here. He's not being sloppy with his words or clumsy with his words. Like I use the word um all the time, um, um, um. He's not doing that. He's like um immediately. He's not being sloppy or clumsy. He is describing the breathless pace with which God's apocalyptic campaign is unfolding. It is happening right now in Jesus. It's happening, it's coming, it's here. And what this tells us is very, something very important about Jesus. Jesus is not simply a historical figure from way back then. Jesus is living reality right now. And this gospel speaks to us today 
where we're at and plunges us into the story of Jesus. Today, what I like to do is I like to zoom in on one sentence, the opening sentence of Mark's gospel, and then I like to zoom out to see how this sentence actually hangs over the entire book and what the book is about, and then we'll dive into it um, a little bit more in detail next week. Look at verse 1 in chapter 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel, that's what that good news is, gospel, some of your translations say gospel, about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, this sentence will hang over the whole book like a title that will guide us to what's really going on. And the, the thing is, it, it starts, um, his book, Mark starts his book kind of um, interestingly, almost funny. He used the word uh, arche in the Greek, beginning. His book literally starts beginning. Now, for us, this is no big deal, but um, it seems strange that someone would begin their book by saying, this is the beginning of my book. I read a lot of children's books right now with my daughter, and even children's writers seem more creative than, this is the beginning of the book, y'all. <laughs> and so when we go to this book, like the beginning of the, the most epic story ever told, the beginning, you're like, wait, what? The, the problem is we don't have first century ears. The beginning is used to awaken echoes of the first phrase in Genesis, in the beginning, God. The beginning, God created. The minds of his audience and our minds should go back to the book of the beginnings. Now, why does Mark do this? Because God, who initiated creation, is God who initiates redemption on our behalf. The same God who initiated creation of, of, of male and female now initiate new creation. This is a, very, a larger story arc going on. Genesis is beginning God. Mark is beginning gospel. This is a new beginning. Mark starts us in a new beginning. So this gospel is a new beginning. And the beginning of this gospel is as dependent on the power of God as was the cosmos created by God in the beginning. Now, what does Mark mean by gospel? We'll, we'll dive into this more next week, but what does Mark mean by gospel? Mark doesn't mean here that he's, when he says the beginning of the gospel, Mark doesn't mean that I'm beginning a, a genre of writing, or I'm beginning um, uh, my book, or I'm beginning what, 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 I'm, what I'm talking about. He's actually, for Mark, the gospel is the story and way of Jesus. The gospel has has become known as so many things. We probably all have different definitions of what the gospel is. For Mark and the New Testament writers, the gospel was the story and the way of Jesus. That was good news. As one commentator writes, the gospel is both the message that Jesus preached and what he embodied. He is at the heart of that good news. At, he is at the heart of that good news both in message and content. The messenger is also the message. So the gospel is the story and the way of Jesus. But here is what makes Mark's book so fascinating. Mark lets us know who Jesus is right away from the opening line. We know. We know. We read the book. We go to this book and we're like, what is this book about? The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Okay, this book is about the gospel, the good news, and about Jesus who is the Son of God. We know who Jesus is, but the dramatic irony of the entire book is that the readers know who Jesus is, 
but none of the characters and the story know who Jesus is. So there's a suspense that arises from the tension between the reader's knowledge, our knowledge, and the ignorance of the actors. And what Mark does is he uses this tension to teach us who Jesus really is and what does it really mean to follow this Jesus. So this suspense arises here. We know the beginning. We know at the beginning that the real Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the gospel concerns him. But ironically, nobody else does. Well, actually, only one other group of people know who Jesus is. I wouldn't say people, but demons know who Jesus is. So we know and demons know in Mark, but no one else knows. And this will be one of the main themes in Mark. This is why I, I, I love to, I, this is why I'm really looking forward to getting our church just plunged into this book again, because the context of Mark is unbelief and unawareness. Out of our unbelief and unawareness, Mark will present who Jesus really is, which is brilliant because some of you, or maybe people that you live with or know or work with, don't really believe in biblical Jesus or the real Jesus or however, the Jesus as we've come to know him in history through the scriptures. Years ago, I read a column in the SF Gate that was entitled, When Scary Jesus Makes the News. It's a great title. And the author described Jesus by saying that Christians are deeply ignorant of the real teachings of the true, mystical, renegade, anti-authority Jesus, who was about as far from the modern Pentecostal evangelical fundamentalist organized religion worldview as a vegan from a Kansas slaughterhouse. <laughs> I read that when I, when I first moved to the city. I'm like, this is going to be fun. <laughs> the city is going to be so much fun. But I also remember thinking, and as I look back, I mean, he's not that wrong. But here's the question. Have Christians got it so wrong? Does the columnist have it right? Is somebody, maybe the church, maybe um, uh, revisionists, uh, maybe, maybe critical theorists, are, is somebody recasting Jesus, retelling his story through their own lens? Well, in a sense, we can all be guilty of that. All of us can. I can be guilty of that. You can be guilty of that. Because to be honest, sometimes, a lot of times, most times, we see what we want to see. Uh, the motivational speaker, Tony Robbins, uh, says that in his big mega conferences, um, uh, some, he'll have, have people look around the room and say, name everything brown. In your head, just name everything brown. Brown chairs, brown banister, brown this, brown, brown shirt, whatever. Name everything brown. Now close your eyes. He says, now name everything blue. Close your eyes, though. Name everything blue. And he says the, the point of that is, he says open, and the point of that is your mind often gets what it looks for. And when you're not looking for it, your mind doesn't get it. And the point is this. There's a lot of people, there is a lot of people right now that have um, what the, the common terminology is like deconstructing their faith or walking away from faith. And this is rampant in COVID. A lot of people are doing this. And the reality is, it's really easy to, to deconstruct the Christian faith. You, get what you, you, you see what you want to see. It's also really easy to recast Jesus as someone who just makes your life plan happen. That Jesus is full of victory and he gives me everything I want and if this life doesn't work out, I go to heaven when I die. It's pretty easy. My guilt is taken away. You, you, and my point is, when we looked at Jesus, sometimes we, 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 what our 
uh, what we're looking for is what we get. And a lot of people are guilty of this. What we're going to find is that through Mark, this is the entire context of the book of Mark. The disciples are looking for a certain thing from Jesus, and Jesus continually says, no, that is not who I am, and that is not what I'm about. The first time I taught through the book of Mark, I saw this book as being mainly about saving us from our sin. Now, I don't think that's entirely wrong. I think there's a, a lot of Mark, and we'll read a, a scripture today, that Jesus is literally taking us and saving us from sin, but it also misses a huge point in the book, which I hope to bring into focus this time around, which we'll get into in a second. Which is to say, what my hope is that we'll show up, we, that we do not show up to Jesus with our own idea of who we think he is and what he has come to do, or what we think he, he has to offer us. That we study the book of, of Mark and go, Reveal yourself to us through this book. I think Mark is a study in getting Jesus wrong. Like literally so many people get Jesus wrong. So look at verse 15 again. Mark 1.15. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Notice the kingdom of God has come near. Another translation is the, the, the kingdom of God has broke in. Heaven has been torn open. The kingdom of God has come near. Now, for the first half of the book, the inbreaking of God's kingdom almost looks superhero-esque. So, Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand. Heaven has been torn open. The, the inbreaking kingdom of God is coming near. And for the first eight chapters of the book of Mark, it has this like victorious ring to it. Like this, the way that we would expect if someone said, all of the power of God is coming down now. Everything that, that we would expect happens Jesus casts out demons, he heals the sick, he raises the dead, he calms the sea and the wind, he walks on water, and he twice multiplies the bread to feed the masses. Basically, he's releasing the sovereign power of God over everything created. Now, a perfect depiction of this is in Mark chapter 5. If you have a Bible, turn there. Mark chapter 5, look at verse 1. Jesus gets in a boat. And he crosses the lake to the other side. And verse 2, when he got out of the boat, a man with an... In, listen, listen to the description of this man. A man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often broken chain hand and foot and he tore the chains apart and broke the irons with his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, the tombs and the hills, he would cry aloud and cut himself with stones. So Jesus gets into a boat and goes after this man who lives in the tombs, lives in the graves. He's wild. He has chains around him, but they're all broken. He has broken chains all around him and he takes stones and he cuts himself so he's gashed up. I mean, and he's wild. He's literally wild. But Jesus goes after him. Look at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. And then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And the demon said, I am legion. Now this is like the theme of every demonic horror movie, right? <laughs> Who are you? Legion. And the head turns around and then, I, it's crazy, right? This isn't a movie. This is in the This is it. This is what's happening. And Jesus goes this, and he goes, come out of him. And he casts out the demons into pigs. And the pigs, well, actually, the demons ask for the pigs first. Like, don't, can you send us to the pigs? Like, fine, go to the pigs. So they go to the pigs, and the pigs jump off the cliff and die. This is crazy. 
What this little pericope shows us is the, the, the sovereign power of Jesus. The kingdom of God is breaking in, and because of that, Jesus is going after demonic things. He goes to the most demonic man that people know, and he delivers him like that. In this way, the inbreaking kingdom of God is typified by breaking into time and space, God taking on human flesh, setting things right, reversing the fall of humanity, making everything new. This is something the church carries on even today. This is why the church must be about renewal and the poor and the sick and the marginalized. This was the ministry of Jesus. But the real Jesus isn't simply a social warrior or a miracle worker. There's something bigger going on here. From the, the, the narrative builds from chapter 1, and we'll get into next week. I mean, it builds really fast. Immediately, he's casting out demons, healing the sick, walking in water, calming storms, goes after this demoniac, and then in chapter 8, it, ter- it takes a turn. It hits chapter 8, and it's different. Actually, the entire book hinges on chapter 8. In chapter 8, they're walking in this place called Caesarea Philippi, which is basically walking over the pit of hell. So they, they believed all these, all these demons would come out of Caesarea Philippi, and, and gods were, false gods were worshipped there. And Jesus is standing right on, in Caesarea Philippi, and he says to them, um, who do you say that I am? Now, this is a question that the reader knows because we read it in the opening line. You are Jesus, God's son, um, and the gospel pertains to you. You are Jesus the Christ, the king, the son of God. We know this, but now the disciples are asked. Now, Peter speaks up, and he says what we already know. Verse 29, you are the Christ. And we go, oh, you got it. This is so awesome. Now, by the way, you know the rest of the story, a lot of us, but imagine you the first time you read it, and you're like, oh my gosh, Peter knows who he is now. This is awesome. And it's true. Peter, Peter, um, Peter says you're the Christ, but what we don't understand that what's happening in that is Peter's understanding of what the Christ was to do. Peter's understanding of the Christ was the Christ would carry on uh, uh, this nationalistic um, crushing of the Roman Empire by the hands of the Jews and exercise his power and reign in Jerusalem forever. That's what Peter thinks the Messiah is supposed to do. Look at verse 30. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, this is, this is where things get interesting. Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ, and you think Jesus would say, you got it right, tell the world. Spread the gospel. Jesus says, and he says this over and over and over again in the Bible, I mean, in the book of Mark, don't tell anybody. Wait, what? Like, okay, he actually says this to the demons, too. We know who you are, and Jesus says, silent. He tells, commentators call this the messianic secret motif. <laughs> Jesus tells almost everyone not to reveal who he is. If they think they understand who he is and they say it, Jesus commands them not to tell a soul. The question is, why? Why does Jesus, right here, when Peter says, you're the Christ, Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody. Why? Look at verse 31. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and then he must be killed and after three days rise again. That is not in the plan of the Messiah. That's not what we think the Messiah is supposed to do. And he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke Jesus. Now, that, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> Jesus, no, you're not doing that, man. You're not going to, you know what, I got your back. We all got your back. You're not going to die. 
But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Here's the point. We can be guilty of making up our own versions of Jesus. Even his closest followers were initially guilty of that. We make up and follow Jesus that we're comfortable with, that will fight for our causes and our agenda, whether it be world peace or self-righteousness or whatever, religion or spirituality. We fashion our Jesus and what we think he would do, and then we follow that. And the reason why Jesus tells almost everyone who thinks they know who he is not to tell a soul is because they don't have the whole picture. Those who have recognized that Jesus is the Messiah have much to learn about what that means. Now, after this pivotal moment at Caesarea Philippi, the mighty works of Jesus all but stop. He only does like two to three things, debatable, from that point on. He doesn't do any more miracles. The controlling symbol from chapter 8 on for interpreting who Jesus really is is the cross. And he says it over and over again. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the cross. And, and this is important, if anyone wants to follow me, be my disciple, be my apprentice, become like me, be a Christian, however you want to say it, they must take up their cross to follow me as well. And the point is, Jesus can be rightly understood and only rightly followed as the Son of Man who will surrender power in order to suffer and die. And this is what brings up the dramatic tension in Mark's book. No one truly sees Jesus for who he is. The ones who think they see him, he tells to be quiet. The ones that don't understand Jesus reject Jesus, and only a few of them follow, and a lot of them leave eventually. No one sees Jesus until the cross. Because who Jesus is, according to Mark, is wrapped up in what Jesus has come to do. And the, the, the major point in Mark is that what it means to be a disciple or a follower or an apprentice of Jesus is to follow Jesus to the cross. And as Jesus would go to his death under trumped-up charges and a brutal torture and mocking crowds as he hung on a rugged, bloody cross, praying for the forgiveness of his torturers, innocent and finally breathing his last, there was, according to Mark, a pagan Roman centurion. You could not get farther from the, who we think the people of God are than a Roman centurion. Romans were the oppressors of the Jews. Centurions used their brute force to, a, to oppress the Jews. This is as worse as it gets. And this Roman centurion is standing next to Jesus, making sure that he actually dies on the cross. His job is to oversee the cross and go, I want to make sure he's all the way dead. And this Roman centurion who's standing there at the cross looking at Jesus says these words, truly, this man was the son of God. And Jesus doesn't say, shh, don't tell anybody. Mark just leaves it there. He's not rebuked. He's not told to keep quiet. Because what Mark is saying is finally someone sees Jesus for who he is. 
And Mark leaves it there open for the world, open for all of us to see this is the Son of God. Tell the world. The real Jesus can only be rightly known by at the cross or by the cross. We can only truly know Jesus at the cross. Now, what I don't mean by that is penal substitutionary atonement. That's not what I mean. I don't mean you only know Jesus if you know that you should have been on the cross and he's on the cross for you and believe in him and you go to heaven when you die. We'll unpack that a little bit more as we move along. That's not exactly what Mark means when he says, look to the cross. And here's why I want to point this out, because I do believe that is true. I do believe that at the cross is where Christ paid for our salvation. I believe there was. Jesus will even say it himself, that he paid the penalty for our sin. He gave himself for us. That's all true. But the reason why the cross is a controlling narrative is not so you can look at the cross and go, oh, all of my sins are paid for, and now I'm going to heaven when I die. That is, that is not it. And how we know that is, how, is because of what Jesus was teaching the disciples when he mentioned the cross. So grab your Bibles. This is where we'll, we'll close. Grab your Bibles real quick. Turn to chapter 8. Go ahead and put that slide on the screen. This is what we're going to do. <clears throat> in chapter 8, in chapter 9 and chapter 10, Jesus makes a, a prediction of his passion. That means his, his crucifixion. Uh, I mean, he's going to the cross to suffer and die. Every single one of those instances, the disciples misunderstand what Jesus is saying. They think it means something else. And then he teaches them, what does my death really mean? All that to say is that when we look to the cross, and the cross is the controlling way we see Jesus, Jesus taught us what that means. We might want to lay over that. Well, that means our sins are forgiven when we go to heaven when we die. But what Jesus taught, we ha- that's what we need to start with. Does that, does that make sense? Are we all agreed there? Okay, so let's look at it real quick. Look at chapter 8, verse 31. We read this already. In chapter 8, Jesus says that I am, um, he said, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priest of the law, and he'll be killed. And after three days, he'll rise again. And he spoke plain about this. And then what, what did Peter do? He rebuked him. And then, so that's the, that's the misunderstanding. He rebukes him. He's like, no, no, you, 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 can't, you can't suffer and die. And then Jesus corrects him. I'm going to the cross. But look at what Jesus does. This is what Jesus teaches about his cross. Look at verse 34. This is important. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, you guys need to learn something here. It's really important that you understand what my cross is about. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What, is, what good is it if someone gains the whole world yet forfeits their soul? What can anyone exchange for their soul? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be shamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Here's a prediction. I'm going to the cross. Here's their misunderstanding. You can't go to the cross. You're the Christ. Here's his teaching, his corrective teaching. I'm going to the cross, and if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciples... You take up your cross of self-denial, self-sacrifice, and follow me. Following Jesus is a bloody enterprise. It means that what we are always doing is, is dying or allowing ourselves to suffer for the sake of other people. Now, I know you want to read into that all kinds of stuff. That this is so abusive. That's what's wrong with the church. 
the way of Jesus is the way of suffering agape love for other people. Jesus, that's literally says, take up your cross and follow me. Well, let's keep going. Just, if that's not clear enough for you, let's keep going. Look at verse 31 in chapter 9. Again, uh, Jesus says to them, um, because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after three days he will die. He will rise. Okay, so that's his teaching on the cross. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. But look at verse 32. They don't understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. What are you talking about? We're kind of afraid. Look at verse 33. When he came, when he was in the house, he asked them, what are you arguing about on the road or on the way? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. <laughs> this is supposed to be kind of funny, but also kind of scary. <laughs> Jesus is like, I'm going to the cross and I'm dying. And it keeps on saying, Mark keeps on using the word on the road or on the way, on the way. This is a double entendre. Not only does it mean on the way, meaning following Jesus on the way, following the way of Jesus, but they were literally on the road to Jerusalem for Jesus to die. So when they were on the way to Jerusalem for Jesus to give up his life as a, as a ransom for many, they're arguing about who do you think he likes more? Who do you think's the greatest disciple? Who do you think's like, who do you think's the best? And Peter's like, it's probably me because I'm always like talking and it's really cool and I say cool stuff. And I was like, no, 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 every single time you talk, Jesus rebukes you. It's probably me. I'm like always laying on Jesus and he's lo- I'm in his bosom and it's awesome. And I'm like, like, who's the greatest? And they're arguing, just like, hey, what are you guys arguing about? He's, they're like, I'm not, I'm not telling him. You tell him. It's like, we're actually arguing about who, who you like the most. And Jesus is like, are you kidding? I don't, I mean, in Greek, it's different than I would say. But look, listen to what Jesus says. This is the teaching moment. This is the corrective teaching. Verse 36, or verse, verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the 12. Come here, come here. I'm gonna, I need to teach you this about the cross. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and a servant of all. He took a little child and he placed, and he placed among them, he, taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever claims, welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. They think it's about being the greatest, the best. L- let, me re- let me just contextualize this and read into it a bit. They were following Jesus because they thought that Jesus would make their life plan happen. They wanted to be the best, they wanted to rule and to reign. They wanted to, they had a plan for their life. Like, we're following you, Jesus, because you're going to make the thing I want in my life happen. And Jesus is like, I need to teach you about what the cross, the cross is about servitude. It's about being the least among you. The greatest of you will be a servant. The greatest of you will serve. The cross and following my way is about service sacrificial loving service for the sake of the other. One more. Turn to chapter 10. One more page over. Verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem. You see, they're on their way again. Double entendre. Following the way of Jesus, but on their way to Jerusalem for Jesus to die. With Jesus leading the way. There's so many layers in here. So good. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them that he, what was going to happen to him. We're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and, and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and three days later he will rise. So this is the prediction of his death again. This is the cross. Here's the misunderstanding. You ready? Look at verse 35. And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, Teacher, 
uh, we want to ask you a favor. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Would you let one of us sit at your right hand and the other sit on your left hand in glory? This is the same thing that they have not learned. They think that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be anointed as Christos, the king, the Christ, the the ruler of the Jews, and they want to sit on his right and his left hand when he receives that glory. And Jesus is like, you don't get it. The cross, my way, is not about making your life plans happen. That's not what this is about. So he says, the corrective teaching, verse 42. He says, call them together. See, the teaching moment. Come here, come here, come here. I need to teach you all this again. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even, and here it is, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we might pick up in this verse, see, there it is. Jesus died on a cross, ransom for many. He paid the penalty for my sins. That is there. That is there. But what is the crux of Jesus' corrective teaching around the cross? It is about our salvation, but it's our salvation so that we can enter into the life of Jesus and serve like Christ did to literally be his hands, his feet, his mind, his mouth, his body on this earth. This is why. And so, as we study the book of Mark, what I hope happens is that we start to understand our salvation, our life in Jesus or our discipleship to Jesus, however you want to say it, is not just about our salvation and the forgiveness of sins. That is such a huge part of it. But what Mark is teaching us, it's actually becoming like Jesus and following the cruciform way of Jesus to become a servant of all, to become last, not first. This is really hard to teach in San Francisco, very hard to teach. You're like, well, then I can't work where I work. Well, I can't, I can't compete the way I compete. I can't think. The, I need a rewiring of the way I think. What do you think baptism is about? What do you think that was about? When those people came into the waters of baptism and confessed Christ as Lord, and they went into their death. You see that? They went under. We do full immersion here because we want to model it with our bodies. You go under and you die and then you come out, and you're reborn. And the way this baptismal works is that it's actually just a one-way street. So you, ha- you walk in one way, and there's only one way out, and that's the way of Jesus. So there you walk in, you get baptized, you, and then you, you keep walking out. And you're like, that old life is over there. I'm, I'm going this way now. <laughs> Salvation is about the kind of people we become as we follow Jesus. And I say we become, meaning we have to partner with that. Jesus does save us. He forgives us our sin, and, and we're going to get into that. And that is beautiful and amazing, and it's the access point that we have with God, and we, all, we need that. But I, I think what we've done a lot is, and I've seen this, like, maybe the stuntedness in our, in our church over the years is because we think that's what it's all about. 
But when we revisit this book of Mark, we're going to see it's actually about becoming like Jesus and being a servant and being last when we could be first and using all of our power, all of our authority to serve. That's the hope. Would you stand with me as we pray? We're going to receive communion, but here's the thing. We we have a choice of juice and wine, but there's not that much juice left. (laughs) So you're all going to have to drink some wine this morning. (laughs) So if you can do that... um, the second service, you guys are down for anything. So um, <laughs> if you run out of juice, if you need juice, get in line first. I'll say, I'll say it that way. Um, and we want to respect that and honor that, but, um, but we're running out of, running out of juice. Um, and the wine's not bad, to be honest. Um, we're going we're gonna to receive communion now. And as we do, I would love for you to walk forward and then open your hands to receive it. And when you do that, when you open your hands to receive it, you're receiving what was given for you. You don't take it. It was given. Christ freely gave his life for you and for me. And the idea is that we see this acted. See, do you you realize that Christianity is just trying to get the way of Jesus into our bodies? Baptism, get death into our bodies. Communion, receiving it. We see Christ's blood and body broken and poured out, and we're like, we want to become like that. And not so much so that we're going to take this into our own bodies. It's going to become part of us. And now this is the way we live. We live in, in service to others. We live in agape love for one another. Like we want to become these kind of people. Now, if you don't get that and you're stumbling and you're falling, welcome to the club because the book of Mark is full of those people. I am one of those people that continues to make it about me and not about service. I'll be the first to admit that. And it's a process of wiring that out of my body over and over and over again. This is why we come to the table to confess how we make it about us and not about the way of Jesus. How we make it about us and not serving others. How we make it about us and our glory and not other people. And so we confess that and we're like, may we bring the life and death of Jesus inside of us and make us more like you, God. And we go into our, our, our next week and like, May you shape us into people like Jesus. We also have carpets here for you to kneel and respond to God with your body, to kneel, because when you kneel, you can't run. You're like, I'm here. Make me like you. And prayer teams, if you came into here with anything at all, any, anything you need prayer for, anything, please come forward to the prayer. They would love to pray for you. Any need you have, something that came up today, something that you've been carrying for the last week, we would love to pray and minister to you. Let's all open our hands to God. Lord, Come, Holy Spirit, right now, as we respond to you, the living, immediate God, right now. We believe that uh, in moments like this, heaven does meet earth. Heaven is torn open and it remains open. It never closes. Actually, at the end of the book of Mark, the veil is torn open as well. We have full access to you. You have full access to us because of Jesus, his way, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And we, as a church, remember that. If we've fallen far from that or are in fear of just falling away from that, we come to the table and we say, Lord, save us.
Jesus' name.